The scripture this morning is Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. If you could stand for the reading of God's word. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. In turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other king is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. The word of the Lord. And thank you, Dean. Remember... Um over the past week, we've been, weeks, we've been drawing some parallels between what Joshua did in conquering the land of Canaan in a physical sense and what Jesus did in conquering the land in a spiritual sense. In order to accomplish his quest to, to accomplish his quest to conquer and possess the land of Canaan, the promised land, Joshua had to fight battles. He had to. And in order to fight battles, he needed an army. Soldiers who were willing to make the sacrifices necessary to overcome determined enemies. Well, as Jesus conquers spiritually, His chosen army is us. His body. The church. But instead of calling us soldiers, He calls us disciples. We too have battles that we must fight and we too must be willing to make the, the sacrifices necessary to follow Jesus in His mission to overcome a determined enemy and save a lost world. It costs something to be a true disciple. Now if you read this passage that, that Dean just shared with us, if you read it incorrectly, it might lead some to believe that there are, well, what you might call different tiers for the Christian life. They believe that after reading what they see as Jesus' formula for discipleship, that Jesus must have been talking to those who are specially called like, you know, pastors and missionaries and evangelists and people like that. Or maybe people who are retired or or people who live in convents and monasteries. Many believe that 
those individuals are the only ones who can do what Jesus calls us to do in this passage. Put Jesus first, carry our cross, and give up everything. That's to a limited class of people. Everyone else has to be happy with being just a regular Christian. Right? Regular Christianity is for regular people who have secular jobs and who have families to feed. I mean, you don't have time for all this stuff that Jesus told us we have to do to be a disciple. Regular Christians have to be satisfied with kind of a different level of discipleship than what Jesus is talking about here. One only has to be committed as much as their job and family obligations will allow. And all the people said, Amen. <laughs> the real discipleship stuff is for the, you know, pastors and people like us, see? However, let's take another look at this passage. Here's, here's, the, here's the, the, the invitation that Jesus offers. Again, He says, follow me, put me first, pick up your cross, give up everything. Jesus is not offering a discipleship that has terms like the tier, a tiered gym membership or one of those airline clubs. You know, you can join uh, different airline clubs and... If you're a frequent flyer on, on different airlines, you can choose to become a premium member or a Star Alliance Gold member or a United Club member. And each one provides a certain level of flying experience with the premium club being at the very top. Well, Jesus doesn't have a gold club, a silver club, or even a bronze club. Jesus has a discipleship club. That's it. And so you want to be a disciple? Jesus says, here's what it requires. And he begins uh, kind of in a way that might put us off a little bit. He kind of he uses this word hate. What's this thing about hating? Well, first of all, Jesus is an honest recruiter. He wants you to know what you're in for. Um, in, I, I've never been in the military and I've never talked to a um, military recruiter, but people I have talked to who have been recruited into the military, you know, there's a lot of things about, you know, here's all the different kinds of training you can get and here's the bonuses and et cetera, et cetera. They, they don't think they talk very much about the fact that, you know, if war starts, you could die. I think you're just supposed to assume that, but that's not something... You know, recruiters, if they want you to, to recruit you, they're going to tell you the things that are kind of appealing and, and sound good. They even do that for jobs. And even when d district superintendents call pastors to churches. Oh, they're wonderful people. It's a great church. And, and then you get out there and you find out what's really happening, you know. I, 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 my wife knows this. Um, what's the uh, card company here in... Um, Leaning Tree, Leaning Tree in Boulder. And um, in our drugstore, when we pastored in Eastern Oregon, Hermiston Drug, I remember walking in there one day, and here's a picture. Uh, it's a Leaning Tree card, and it's got this cowboy, you know, kind of a half-grown beard, and got a 
Parsi smoked cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He's looking kind of grumpy and he says, you open up the card and it says, there's a lot they didn't tell me when I hired on with this outfit. <laughs> well, that's kind of how recruiters work. You know, they paint a rosy picture and then you find out later that there's a lot they didn't tell you when you hired on with this outfit. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. Now, I have to admit, there's a lot of things... You know, this is a tough stuff. This is tough stuff Jesus is saying here. You know, there's a lot that Jesus said that we really like the sound of, like, come unto me, all you who labor and have laden. Cast your care on me. I will be with you always. Yeah, I like the sound of that. And think of all the stuff that Jesus did in the New Testament that we like. Like feeding people and healing people and casting demons out of people and calming the storms. Yes, Jesus, go for it. But now he, now he talks about, well, I want to give you the full picture. It's not always going to be as rosy and sweet as you might think if you follow me. And I think that's one of the misconceptions we have in the world that we live in. Uh, and I'll touch on this a little more later, but that, you know, if you follow Jesus, life just automatically gets a whole bunch better. And all your problems go away. I mean, isn't that what God's supposed to do for you? Okay. So, let's go. What is this thing about hating then? Because Jesus starts with this word hate. Um, well, in the first verse it says, great crowds were traveling with Jesus. And you're thinking, well, what's that have to do with hating? Well, hang, hang with me for just a minute. We have to understand why Jesus used this word before we can talk about the word itself. So great crowds were with him because they were fascinated by his presence and bearing or struck by his teaching or marveled at his mighty works. He was a, he was a kind of this neat thing that was happening. You know, it's like, he had these groupies following him because, hey, let's see what Jesus is going to say or do next. So had these, you know, he was kind of this entertainment thing. Uh, maybe it was a kind of a break from the boredom of life in ancient Israel. I don't know. But he had crowds following him everywhere he went to see what next interesting and exciting thing he would do. And so, in honesty... The, most of the people in these crowds were far from entering into his spirit or, or sharing the purpose for him being here in the first place. Uh, that didn't have anything to do with why they were following Jesus. They were following him because they believed he was the chosen king of the Jews. There was no way he was going to die, right? That wouldn't happen. But instead, he would lead them in a, in, a, in a revolution against the Romans and get them out from under the boot or the heel or the thumb of Roman oppression. That's why he was here. So they were going to, you know, they were kind of there to rah rah and hey yeah and. Um, so they didn't really understand who he actually was and why he was here. Therefore, it was imperative that Jesus used bold words to make the people understand what being a disciple of His really meant. The absolute self-surrender that was involved with being a follower, a true follower of Jesus Christ. It was time for, under, for, for them to understand what the Son of Man was really all about. And He turned to them and said, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate 
his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Man, that doesn't sound like Jesus to talk about hating. Now, I know that we have permission to hate at least one thing. We can hate sin. We can genuinely hate sin. But that's about it. It's about it. About the only thing we really have permission to hate. Sin. We don't hate, we don't hate sinners. We don't hate the people who commit the sin. But what we hate is what it does to lives. And the eternal consequences it has in people's lives. So we hate sin. Look at what it's done in our world. I mean, think about the consequences. What happened out here? Um, what is it in Firestone this last week? That's what sin does. That's what evil does. We can hate sin because of what it does in our world. But hating our, our, our family? Well, let's dig into this a, a little bit. Um, so, this word hate. First and foremost, Jesus, who is love incarnate, is not the author of hate. Obviously, we, I, I hope we know right from the start that what he meant by hate is not to dislike intensely, which might be how we would define it. Alright? I mean, should we dislike the members of our family intensely? Now, I don't see Jesus asking us to do that. Whatever it may mean, it doesn't mean to dislike intensely. We know, first of all, that the New Testament was written in Greek, but Jesus spoke primarily in Aramaic. It was the language of the common people, and because Jesus hung out with the common people, that was the language He most commonly used. And so, Jesus did use the word hate in Aramaic. And then the Gospel writers like Luke used the word hate in Greek, and then the translators to NIV and some of the other things we read use the word hate too. And so we have a tendency to think in hate of hate by our definition of what it is. It's this kind of a thing, right? It's this intense dislike or revulsion. I don't know what you would call it, but... So, we read it and we're going, what? Well, the Aramaic word for hate really means to love less than. To love less than. So listen to the New Century Version translation of this verse. If anyone comes to me but loves his father, mother, wife, children, brothers or sisters or even life more than me, he cannot be my follower. So it's not this revulsion, this intense dislike. It's, it's, uh, it's, you can almost call it a matter of degree. Um, in the uh, common English version, here's how it, it translates that verse. You cannot be my disciple unless you love me more. Then you love your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters. You cannot come with me unless you love me more than you love your own life. Does that give you a little different view of what Jesus meant when He used the word hate? It's probably not what we would think by our, uh, uh, our initial reading of that. In, in the NIV in Matthew 10.37 
it, it, it again expresses the true meaning of the word that Jesus used there when he says, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In Romans 9.13, uh, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. where, And he says, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The meaning is simply, I have loved Jacob, the Israelites, from whom the, Jacob, the Israelites descended from him, more than Esau, whom the Edomites descended from. Jesus, God wasn't saying I have this intense dislike for Esau. It was, a, it was like a matter of degree. So, we got past that, have we? The word hate there. So, what's this telling us then? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What's it telling us? Well, it's telling us that Jesus must be our priority relationship. In other words, we must love Him above all others. Jesus, in this one verse, sets up the priorities or the hierarchy for our priorities in life. God is the one who is loved more than even our parents, our spouse, our children, our siblings. He whom we love the most is, is He whom we strive most to please. He whom we love most is He whom we strive most to please. I hope we strive to please those we love, don't we? And if we love God most, we will strive to please Him. And in, we hope that in His will and interest will be our priority as well. We strive to please Him. We want His interests, His will to be a priority in our lives. If God is at the center of your life, then no matter what decision you make, no matter where, what place you go, no matter what activity you participate in, the question will always be on your mind, will this decision... Will my going here, will this activity be pleasing to God? Probably something we need to ask ourselves more often. It's, it's a question we should have at the forefront of our minds at all times because we prefer His interests and His will be done in every circumstance of our lives. Jesus is calling not for spectators but for recruits. When He called people to follow Him, He didn't mean for them just to tag along behind Him out of curiosity, but to throw in their lot with Him in, in commitment, in complete commitment. The Christian life requires that we live. It's not just a, 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 a mental or, or even a heart ascent. It's an action thing as well. We live for Him. And as God does the leading, we must be willing to do the following no matter how hard or scary the path in front of us seems. And frankly, in the place we live and the freedoms we enjoy, 
the path really isn't very hard or scary compared to what many people on our planet who are Jesus followers have to deal with. So, I think Jesus means in this passage that if God and His kingdom are of all consuming importance in our lives, then all other loves are less by comparison. Our first commitment must always be to Jesus. We cannot permit anyone, no matter how near or how dear, to come between us and our relationship with Christ. Nothing less than first place in our hearts must be offered to Jesus. He insists on being put before father and mother, before spouse and children, before brothers and sisters. All relationships are to be below Him. So, Christ must be the priority relationship in our lives. And then He tells us, take up your cross which means following Jesus will require sacrifice. That's what the cross was all about. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow Me cannot be My disciple. In fact, in in Luke 9.23, Jesus says we are to pick up the cross daily. It's a daily thing. Um, In one of my Bibles, uh, and... um, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where it talks about being a living sacrifice. That relates to the idea of taking up your cross. And I remember writing in the, in the uh, margin daily. That's a, a decision we have to make as followers of Jesus Christ daily. To be willing to take up the cross. To be a living sacrifice. I, I like that living part. I think you do too. Yeah. God is calling us to self-sacrifice. Now, we know what the cross was used for in Roman times. It was the death penalty. And it was a very unpleasant way to die. And Jesus is saying to you and me that we must pick up our cross or whatever might signify death in today's world and follow Him. Now, our cross isn't like Jesus' cross in, the, in, in a literal sense. Um, the one that He died on so that we could know forgiveness of sins. Our cross is that thing that we choose to do in following Jesus that is sacrificial, that is difficult. That thing we choose to do because we're His disciples. The hard place we choose. The difficult uh, relationship we choose, the thankless job we choose, that thing that happens behind the scene and nobody recognizes, but that's what Jesus has called us to do. Most often it's a sacrifice of pride or acknowledgement or um, recognition. Those kinds of things. Sometimes, and uh, it may be a matter of uh, humiliation, being willing, uh, embarrassment, um, criticism, 
you know, those, um, you know, those crazy Christians and the stuff they believe. That's the kind of sacrifice we most often have to make as we choose to take up our cross. We do things that no one else is willing to do because we're, we're convinced that that's God's agenda for us. It takes unquestioning obedience. It takes discipline. But we, like Isaiah, need to be able to say, Lord God, here am I. Send me. I'll take up my cross. So the principles of the Christian life really are renounce self-dependence and self-pursuits. Embrace the circumstance that God has put you in. And bear the troubles and difficulties we may meet in walking the Christian road. Whatever those might be for you. We're, we're called to immigrate, 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 imitate Jesus and do all in His Spirit. That includes whatever suffering we might be called to bear. It's, it's denying or renouncing ourselves fully. And that's not an easy thing to do, is it? Jesus has said that to follow Him it's going to cost us our will. It's going to cost us our will. We're required to exchange our will for His will. It's a matter of us wanting God to do His work in our hearts and minds. Did you hear about the farmer who asked his neighbor if he could borrow a rope? The neighbor said, sorry, I'm using the rope to tie up my milk. Milk, said the farmer. You can't tie up milk with a rope. And his neighbor replied, I know, but when a man doesn't want to do something, one reason is as good as another. There is no acceptable reason for not allowing God to have 100% of us 100% of the time. And if we're willing to do that, then it will require us to make daily adjustments in our lives so that we can make good on our commitment to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. It means complete and continuous submission to the will of God. That is taking up our cross. But Jesus said, okay, you need to, I need to be the top priority relationship in your life. You need, to, you need to take up your cross. You need to be willing to sacrifice. And then He said, you need to carefully consider the cost. To follow Jesus requires that I surrender everything to Him. <clears throat> Ray Comfort made the statement that 80% of people who come to Christ fall away because life did not get easier or better after they became a Christian. We kind of have this preconceived notion that God is going to just smooth everything out, deal with all the consequences maybe that we've earned for ourselves that are negative, and everything is going to get rosy and sweet and walking with God... I don't know where that at well. I do know where some of that came from. We have some preachers who preach that kind of a gospel. But it's not true. You know, we have a 
we have a world that, that sometimes rejects God because there are bad things that happen. We just want God... Listen, here's how we view God. When I have a need, I want you to come and make everything better. I want you to bail me out. I want you to provide for me. I want you to heal me. I want you to give me all the stuff I ask for. But when you've done that, stay out of my life. Do all the good things I want you to do, but don't ask anything of me. We want God to be this great big sugar daddy in the sky who does all these wonderful things for me and protects me from all the bad stuff in the world that could possibly happen to me. But that's not how it works, is it? Someone said that if God intervened in every bad situation in life, that would do away with our will. A lot of those things happen because we've made a decision to go somewhere where we shouldn't be or someone else made a decision to do something wrong. And it impacts us. And so we want God just to intervene every time. Whoop! Oh, that's better. Whoop! That didn't happen. Whoop! You got what you wanted. But then when He says, oh, by the way, I want you to live for Me and submit your will to Me and I want you to take up your cross daily and you might have to suffer for Me and some people even die for Me. It's like, no, 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 no. You do good stuff for Me and then I do what I want after that. Right? Isn't that kind of how... That's, that's, what's, that's what some people like. That's the kind of God they want in their lives. <laughs> but that's not what Jesus is saying, is it? 80% of people who come to Christ fall away because life did not get easier or better for them after they became a Christian. Too many Christians want to wear the uniform without paying the price. Was it back in Desert Storm um, in Iraq? You know, the uh, shock and awe, remember all that? And I remember was it, they were calling up a lot of people in the National Guard and things like that to go. And I remember reading in the paper about people who were whining and crying and fussing because they were going to have to go to war. You're in the military. That's what the military does. But see, they came in because a recruiter told them, you'll get money for school, you'll get your education, you'll get trained, you'll get bonuses. They forgot about the war part. We want to, to wear the uniform and we want all the bennies of that, but we don't want the war part. We don't like the thought of that. We want the blessings of Christianity and the reward of heaven without the discipline and sacrifice that it may require. Gimme, give gimme, give gimme, give gimme, gimme. And then gimme heaven too. It requires obedience. It requires commitment. It requires sacrifice. That's what Jesus is saying about His followers. Bill, are you raising your hand? You know you're doing the right thing when you're under attack by the devil. <laughs> That's true. Even churches know that. And it depends on what we do with that, doesn't it? See, we want to enjoy the spoils of victory without facing the dangers of battle. We want to be disciples, but we fail to count the costs. And that's what Jesus is telling us 
we have to do. William Barclay writes, we must be ready for a loyalty that would sacrifice the dearest thing in life and for a suffering that would be like the agony of a man on a cross. It is, po- it is possible to be a follower of Jesus without being a disciple. We would call that being a fan. To be a camp follower without being a soldier of the King. To be a hanger-on in some great work without pulling one's own weight. It is one of the supreme handicaps of the church that there are so many distant followers and so few real disciples. So now that Jesus had pointed out in pretty strong graphic language, almost shocking terms, what the real cost of disciples is, discipleship is, then he goes on to give these two illustrations of the necessity of counting the cost of doing that, of discipleship. Basically, Jesus says, I tell you, I tell you all of this because it is much better that you should know what you're committing to by following me. I don't, you, I don't want you to walk into this blind and say, hey, wait a minute, I didn't bargain for this. I want you to know up front what you're getting into. So, um, he lays it out for him. He lays it out for him. I want you to enter upon a course that you will, at, that you at some point won't be determined. Uh, lost the word. Tempted to abandon, or um, when things get tough. I don't want you to, to undertake a course of action that you'll find yourself unequal for. So let me tell you what, you're, what, what is expected of a disciple. And I think wise people, before they definitely commit themselves to a course of action, consider carefully if they can carry it through or not. And Jesus says that's right. And so here... Here's an illustration. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. I've seen some places like that. You probably have too. This... That little story, that parable represents the short-sightedness of those who would undertake to be disciples of Jesus without considering what difficulties they might face and what strength will be required to go through with the undertaking of being a true disciple. Those that would be true disciples of Jesus Christ shall require no less than the mighty power of God to support them. You know why? All the forces of hell will be in opposition to you. Yeah. Our ability to pay the cost of being Jesus' disciple is going to be found nowhere else than in the almighty power of God. You cannot do this in your own strength. God has provided through His Holy Spirit the power and ability to live the Christian life victoriously. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world.
And then Jesus gives a second example just to make sure we get it. You know, tell them, tell them again, and then tell them what you told them. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? That'd be a good, that'd be reason right then and there for me to say, yeah, I think that's a bad idea. 10,000, 20,000? No. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. The story is told of the military legend Alexander the Great, king of Macedonia and conqueror of Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, Babylonia, and Persia, almost all the known world at that time. One day, on the warpath, Alexander and a small company of soldiers approached a strongly fortified, uh, fortified walled city, and Alexander raised his voice and demanded to see the king. When the king arrived, Alexander ordered him to surrender to the city and everyone inside. The king laughed. Why should I surrender to you? You can't do any harm to us. But Alexander offered to give the king a demonstration. He ordered his men to line up single file and start marching. He marched them straight toward a cliff. The townspeople gathered on the wall and watched in shocked silence and amazement as one by one, his soldiers marched without hesitation right off the cliff to their deaths. After ten soldiers died, Alexander ordered the rest of the men to return to his side. The townspeople and the king immediately surrendered to Alexander the Great. They realized that if a few men were actually willing to die at the command of this leader, then nothing could stop his eventual victory. There's a conclusion and a parallel to be drawn there, isn't there? That applies to us. What this is saying is we need to be falling, to be willing to follow Jesus at least as willing as Alexander's men were willing to follow him, right? More. That's right, more. One must stop and consider the cost before becoming Jesus' disciple. What Jesus requires is unwavering allegiance and we must decide if that's what we are willing to give. Jesus doesn't want to mislead anyone. He wants you to know exactly what it means to follow Him. He wants you to consider carefully and then make your decision. He wants you to commit, totally commit, Everything, heart, body, soul, mind, all that you have. In the same way, any of you who does not give everything he has cannot be my disciple. It must all be surrendered to Jesus. Consider the matter, therefore. Weigh everything before you act. Count the cost. And decide deliberately and with full understanding what it is you're doing if you commit to me. Renouncing all one's possessions will do no good unless one renounces self. That's the key really, isn't it? This giving up of one thing 
or another thing in our lives might be a token sign of our consecration, but it must go deeper than that. It must be an inward surrender of our will to His way, His will, our way to His way, our desires and little, little or big, whatever they may be, to His supreme desire. It is saying, not my will, but thine be done. Just like Jesus said. That's what it means to be a disciple. Being a disciple requires humility. It requires commitment. It requires servanthood. It means putting Jesus first. It means taking up your cross. It means giving up everything, surrendering all to Him. Amen? Lord Jesus, today as we've looked into this passage of Scripture, this is no doubt one of the harder sayings, one of the harder things that you had to share with people. You know, they liked it when you said, hey, here's food to eat. They liked it when you said, be healed. They liked it when you said, demon be gone. They liked it when you said, storm be stilled. They liked it when you said, you can cast all your care on me. I am with you always. But then, Jesus, there were these other things that shed light on what it means to follow you. To live the way that you called us to live. To be completely committed to you. And, and you laid it out for us. You didn't want anything to be hidden. You didn't want us to be surprised when things didn't go the way we thought they should or or when we have to deal with suffering or heartbreak or difficulty or pain. You wanted us to know. You wanted us to know that you have to be the ultimate priority relationship in our lives. You wanted us to know that we would be called to sacrifice to take up our cross You wanted us to know that it meant that we would need to surrender everything of ourselves and all that comes with us to You and to Your Lordship. And so Jesus, today, may we embrace this in our lives. I think it would call us to say, what kind of difference would it make in our church, in our community, if we live the way that this passage of Scripture calls us to live in complete commitment, in complete surrender to You, Lord Jesus, and Your will for our lives. Willing to sacrifice. Willing to count the cost and say, you know what, I'm, I embrace this. I'll do this, Jesus. Because that's what You've called me to do. Oh God, cement that kind of commitment in our lives. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.